Good evening, I'm Martin Bang, and here's what's shaking the world tonight. Operation Hailstone, US Navy throws rocks at Chuck Lagoon. Army Aviator's White House lawn ornament. And Puccini's butterfly gets swatted at La Scala. In other news, a cat burglar was caught stealing cat scans. Stay tuned for the full report, where we uncover the truth behind the myth that Julius Caesar was actually a Caesar salad. And remember, if news is the message, I'm the messenger who's lost his horse. Newsbang, the last bastion of truth in a sea of lies. 1944. 1944 and the Second World War raged on like Knowles House Party. The Americans, fed up with losing at battleships to the Japanese in the Pacific, decided enough was enough. Enter Operation Hailstone, a sneak attack on Chuk Lagoon, a picturesque atoll that doubled as a top-secret Japanese base. The US Navy sent their finest ships, or what was left of them, after Pearl Harbor's surprise karaoke night, and sailed into harm's way or rather, the way of thousands of terrified Japanese sailors caught off guard mending their socks and braiding each other's hair. It was carnage, recalled eyewitness seaman Jim Blowhard. I haven't seen such destruction since my last shore leave. The ensuing battle lasted for hours or days depending on how fast you could swim away from exploding warships. When it was over, both sides claimed victory. The Americans because they sank most of Japan's navy and all their new balsa wood aircraft carriers. The Japanese because they managed to scuttle themselves before being taken prisoner by GIs who hadn't seen a woman in years. 1974. In a bizarre incident that shocked the world, an American soldier stole a helicopter and landed it on the White House lawn today. The brazen act was committed by Robert Chopper Preston, who wanted to show off his piloting skills to President Nixon. Eyewitnesses were left gasping as the UH-1 Huey pilot buzzed over Washington, D.C. before touching down in the South Lawn, leaving behind only rotor wash and astonishment. I thought it was Saddam Hussein come for our freedom, said one bystander, clutching their stars and stripes underpants. But nope! Just some guy showing off. The Secret Service apprehended Preston moments later after he emerged from the chopper, wearing aviators and chewing gum. He reportedly said, I always wanted to do that, before being whisked away in handcuffs. The stunt has prompted calls for tighter security at Army air bases nationwide or else they might wake up with an F-16 parked on their White House. 1904 On this day in 1904, Italian composer Giacomo Puccini's latest work, Madama Butterfly, premiered to a chorus of boos and hisses at La Scala in Milan. The audience who had been promised an evening of soaring arias and high-pitched emotion, were left feeling like they'd swallowed the fat lady's vibrato. One disgruntled punter, Signor Beppu di Pasta Malformaggio, said, It was just one big C-sharp. I mean, I expected some Figaro, but it was more like Figaro. Puccini fled the scene on a Vespa before returning hours later with revised score in hand. He then serenaded the empty auditorium with Nessun Dorma pizza delivery guy out front for their troubles. And that is why we should never underestimate the power of mozzarella to heal all wounds. News Bang. Unleashing the dogs of truth on the fleas of falsehood. Here's Shakanaka Giles with your forecast for tomorrow's weather.
Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a chilly morning, like waking up next to a polar bear with a cold. A few snowflakes might flutter down, as if Mother Nature's shaking a snow globe. Moving on to the, to the Midlands, it'll be a bit like a cat on a, on a hot tin roof, cold and unpredictable. The wind will be blowing harder than a politician's promises. In the north, it'll be a right proper winter's day, with snow drifts as high as a Scotsman's kilt. Keep those hot toddies at the ready. And finally, in the west, it'll be a bit of a mixed bag, like a box of chocolates left out in the cold. Expect rain, sleet, and maybe even a bit of hail. In summary, a winter's day with a side of whimsy, and that's all the weather. Nineteen sixty-four. In a dramatic turn of events in 1964, Gabonese military officers attempted to overthrow President Leon Emmaba, only to be thwarted by French forces who reinstated the embattled leader. The coup, sparked by Emmaba's dissolution of the Gabonese legislature, saw a provisional government installed under his political opponent. Despite the upheaval, the Gabonese populace remained largely indifferent. Emmaba was subsequently exiled to Lambarene while the new administration took charge. Now, for more on this extraordinary tale of intrigue and political brinkmanship, we turn to our reporter, Brian Bastable. A twitch in the cosmos of war has caught my eye. This isn't a skirmish, it's a full-on bang-up affair. There's nothing so thrilling as this, and that's why I signed up for it in the first place. Gabonese troops have broken out their secret weapons, an array of kitchen utensils from Grandma Gabby's cupboard, and they are storming the fortified redoubt where President Leon Mabar has barricaded himself away with nothing but a dozen chickens to keep him company while he waits for his last stand against fate. Mere feet away, Gabon's opposition leader Jean-Hilaire Obame is rallying his forces into battle with slogans like Debone that chicken, while rousing them to action with marches from Elton John and Rod Stewart ringing through the streets like bugles on parade day at West Point Military Academy. I see before me now men whose faces bear expressions ranging from those filled with sheer terror at having just been shoved headfirst into a pile of discarded cassava peelings by comrades less sympathetic than themselves. Others radiate joyous exuberance at finally being able to wear. Their grandmother's favorite aprons on their heads as helmets instead of hiding them shamefully under bed covers whenever she comes over for tea. And yet there remains one question. What does all this mean? Who will emerge victorious? Will it be President Maba, his face flushed crimson beneath an ever-growing pile of feathers? Or will our newfound hero, Jean-Hilaire Obame, lead us triumphantly towards whatever glorious future awaits us beyond these dark times we find ourselves mired within? Only time will tell. But not here or now, because I am afraid my tank needs filling up again soon, and besides which you can hear gunfire approaching even closer than when we started this little episode together, so I suggest we part ways 
before things get too hot around here. Thank you very much. Goodbye forever. Never speak again. Until next time, maybe bye then. 2011. The year is 2011, and the Arab Spring has erupted across the Middle East. Protests have engulfed Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, and Bahrain. In Bahrain, security forces have brutally cracked down on demonstrators at the Pearl Roundabout in Manama, resulting in four fatalities. Demands for political reform echo through the streets as government forces demolish the roundabout. Meanwhile in Libya, a brutal civil war rages between Muammar Gaddafi loyalists and rebel groups. Gaddafi's reign of terror will soon meet its end in 2011. To further discuss these events, we turn to our correspondent Ken Shit. Good evening, degenerates. We're transporting ourselves back to the year 2011, a time when the Arab world was ablaze with revolution, rebellion, and bloodshed. The Arab Spring, a series of anti-government protests that swept across the region like a raging inferno, began in Tunisia and spread like wildfire to Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Syria, and Bahrain. In Bahrain, the ruling elite showed their true colors when security forces opened fire on peaceful protesters at the Pearl Roundabout in Manama, killing four of them in cold blood. This heinous act of violence sparked demands for political reform, but the Bahraini government responded with brutal force, destroying the roundabout and crushing the rebellion. Meanwhile, in Libya, the civil war raged on between forces loyal to the despot Muammar Gaddafi and rebel groups. Gaddafi, a man so power-hungry he made Pol Pot look like a pussycat, ruled Libya with an iron fist for over four decades. But in 2011, the tide turned against him and the rebels began to gain ground. As the conflict escalated, the international community intervened with NATO launching airstrikes against Gaddafi's forces. The once mighty dictator was eventually captured and killed, but the victory came at a terrible cost. Thousands of lives were lost and the country was plunged into chaos and violence. So there you have it, degenerates. The Arab Spring, a time of hope, rebellion, and ultimately tragedy. A reminder that freedom comes at a price, and that sometimes the cost is too high. This is Ken Shit signing off for tonight. Remember, the world is a fucked up place, and it's up to us to make it right. 1815 In a momentous event that has echoed through the annals of history, the year 1815 marked the conclusion of the War of 1812 between the United States and the United Kingdom. The Treaty of Ghent, ratified by both nations, brought an end to the hostilities and restored pre-war borders. The US Senate swiftly approved the treaty, signalling a return to peace. And now, for a deeper dive into this historical juncture, we turn to our esteemed correspondent Hardiman Pesto. Martin, I'm here in Washington, D.C. in 1815, where the Treaty of Ghent has just been ratified, formally ending the War of 1812 between the United States and Britain. There are scenes of jubilation in the streets as the news spreads that pre-war borders have been restored. I have with me Secretary of State James Monroe, key negotiator of the treaty. Mr. Secretary, this must be a proud day for you. Indeed it is, Pesto. Tell me, what concessions did the British make in these negotiations? My understanding is they gave up very little. 
Well, they did agree to return borders to status quo antebellum Martin, and also agreed not to provide weapons to Native American tribes. But they made no concessions on the key issues that caused the conflict. Impressment of sailors, blockades, and trade restrictions. The war was fought over these grievances, yet the treaty addresses none of them. Mr. Secretary, did you fail to achieve any of America's objectives? We secured a peace that preserves America's honor, Mr. Bang. This treaty paves the way for expanded trade and westward expansion. I would not call it a failure. Except the British are still impressing American sailors, still restricting trade, and still aiding Indian raids on the frontier. How can you call this peace a success? The Secretary makes an excellent point that peace itself is the accomplishment here. And with peace, new opportunities abound for America. The frontier is open and the economy is set to thrive. The economy is in a depression after the war. There's mounting debt and no gains to show for it. Mr. Secretary, is this not a disastrous failure of diplomacy that surrenders American rights? You go too far, sir. While imperfect, this treaty spares us further bloodshed. We will emerge the faster from these trials for having secured an honorable peace. Good day to you. And there you have it, Martin. Peace and prosperity ahead. Thanks to shrewd Yankee diplomacy. Back to you in the studio. What a load of hogwash. This bumbling secretary snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. The only reason the British signed this treaty is because they were fighting Napoleon. Once finished with him, they'll turn their guns back on us. Mark my words, this war isn't over. 1974. And in a truly astonishing incident, the year being 1974, a US Army soldier named Robert Kenneth Preston commandeered a Bell UH-1 helicopter and executed a landing on the South Lawn of the White House in Washington, D.C. The motivation behind this daring escapade, a desire to demonstrate his prowess as an aviator. The White House, for those unfamiliar with American geography, serves as both the official residence and workplace of the President of the United States. Melody Wintergreen has more on this extraordinary tale. The South Lawn of the White House, where typically the only birds to land are those of Peace or Air Force One. But today, a different kind of eagle has landed, a UH-1 helicopter, not with a president aboard, but a lone U.S. Army soldier at the helm, Robert Kenneth Preston. His mission, not to breach security, but to breach skepticism about his piloting prowess. The Whirly Birds whirlwind performance has turned the presidential backyard into an impromptu air show, Preston's aerial antics have drawn eyes skyward and security guards outward as they scramble to respond to this unscheduled fly-in. The chopper's blades slice through the DC air like a knife through political red tape, while onlookers wonder if this is a coup or just copter curiosity gone wild. As Preston touches down, it's clear this isn't your standard commute to the Oval Office. It's a flight of fancy that's grounded in one soldier's quest for validation rather than villainy. So as Robert Kenneth Preston shows off his rotorcraft mastery, it seems he's also landed himself in a whole new kind of war zone, one fought with legal briefs and not with rifles. This is Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang, where history has taken flight in the most literal sense on the South Lawn of the White House. News Bang, a brief respite from the storm of misinformation. Nuifdern, 1959. And now here's Calamity Prenderville with a special report on Vanguard 2, 
the groundbreaking British weather satellite that brought cloud cover measurement to the world. Welcome back to Newsbang, where we're time travelling to 1959. Today, we're celebrating the launch of Vanguard 2, the world's first weather satellite. It's a British innovation that's out of this world. Imagine a time when predicting the weather was as reliable as guessing the number of beans in a jar. But thanks to our British ingenuity, we can now measure cloud cover distribution with precision. Vanguard 2 is no ordinary satellite. It's equipped with state-of-the-art technology that can measure cloud cover in octus. For those unfamiliar with the term, an octa is a unit of measurement for cloud cover, ranging from zero, clear skies, to eight, completely overcast. But what does this mean for us Earthlings? Well, by measuring cloud cover, Vanguard 2 can predict sunshine duration. This is revolutionary for farmers, sunbathers, and anyone planning a picnic. The space race was a tense time, but our British weather satellite stole the show. While other nations were busy racing to the moon, we were busy measuring clouds. And let's face it, who needs the moon when you have accurate weather predictions? So here's to Vanguard 2, the unsung hero of the space race, a testament to British innovation and our obsession with the weather. Keep watching Newsbang for more ridiculous reports from history. This is Calamity Prenderville signing off. News Bang, the only news source that dares to be different by being right. Leuve, 1913. In a stunning display of avant-garde audacity, the year 1913 saw the first armory show in the United States, unveiling modern art from the 1860s to the 1970s. A bold departure from traditional art styles, this exhibition at New York City's 69th Regiment, armory celebrated experimentation and abstraction. Now for an in-depth look at this revolutionary event, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Wahoo, culture vultures! It's Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to paint you a picture of the most bonkers art bash of the century, the 1913 Armory Show. So... Strap on your most pretentious monocle and let's dive into the canvas of chaos. Picture it. New York City, 1913, and the 69th Regiment Armory is about to get a makeover that would make Picasso's brows unfurrow. The Association of American Painters and Sculptors decided it was high time to slap America across the face with a wet fish of modern art. And oh boy, did they deliver? The joint was packed with pieces that made the stuffy art snobs' monocles pop off their faces and shatter on the floor. We're talking about art from the 1860s to the 1970s. That's like a century of creativity crammed into one spot. It was like Woodstock for the eyes, minus the mud and the free love. The show was a veritable who's who of what the hell am I looking at. There were paintings, sculptures, and things that looked like they were made by a toddler on a sugar high. And the public? They were gobsmacked, flabbergasted, and other words that sound like British swear words. But here's the kicker, the piece de resistance, the cherry on top of this avant-garde Sunday, the armory itself. This Beaux-Arts beauty was like the bell of the ball, 
all dolled up and ready to show off her historic curves. It was like the building was saying, I'm not just a pretty face, I've got brains too. And by brains, I mean RT. So, there you have it, folks. The 1913 Armory Show, where America got its first taste of modern art and immediately asked for a glass of water to wash it down. It was a wild ride from start to finish, and let's be real, it's probably why your weird cousin thinks they can sell their macaroni art for a million bucks. That's all from me, Smithsonian Moss, your artful dodger of the airwaves. Stay tuned for more cultural shenanigans, and remember, if it's not weird, it's not worth watching. News bang! A wake-up call for the willfully blind. And now a final glance at tomorrow's papers. The Guardian. WikiLeaks unleashes Manning's secret trove. There's a USB stick there on the front page. The Times. Truman snubs Filipino fighters with a stroke of a pen. And The Independent. Japanese Army's dark day in Singapore history. That's it. On the day that the man who stole a calendar got 12 months, the man who stole a clock got time, and the man who stole a milestone got a long sentence. Good night, and may your news be as sensational as your dreams. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.